Our whole life in service to God is worship to God. He goes on to write, verse 2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all of the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each one of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of God, and may he be pleased to bless it. Well, let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for this precious time that we can gather together as your people and hear your word. And this is such a life-giving thing that happens every week, and we praise you for it. And we give you so much praise that you are speaking today through your word. So, Lord, I pray that you would move um, upon our disordered hearts and that you would take away the unruly desires and the, the hateful and sinful lust among us, that you would lift the darkness of unbelief, that you would brighten our soul with a pure light of truth, that you would be our comforter, that you would be our light, our guide, and that, the, that you would show us the things of Christ to our soul and make us worship you this morning. Help us to find that in his death that we would see the immensity of his love for us, that we would see that the atonement that has been achieved, the, the, the cross work that has been completed, the satisfaction that has been made, the guilt that has been done away with, the debt that has been paid, our sins that have been forgiven, our person that has been redeemed, and our soul that has been saved. Lord, may you open up this text to us in a powerful way, and may we see your glory and be transformed. We pray for a Holy Spirit work even now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you a question this morning as we start off, and it's this, is what kind of a family did you come from? And what I mean by that is, was it a well-ordered family, um, you know, where the father had a sense of conviction and leadership about him, and the wife and mother had a sense of respect for her husband in the home, and, and were the children reasonably respectful of that order in the home? Um, was your family functional or would you ha classify your family as dysfunctional? Because if the family is in order, then it seems like everything else tends to run smoothly. I mean, school is easier, relationships are not as messy, um, and everything just seems to be healthier. But 
when your family or if your family is dysfunctional, then the exact opposite happens. Everything seems to be out of kilter, disorderly, and, and just sort of unkempt. And so the question is, is what kind of a family did you come from? Because that's an analogy really of the church. The church really functions the same way. When the members are not working together, then really nothing else works. If, if we're dysfunctional, then we can't effectively live and do what God has called us to do. We can't effectively communicate the love of God to others. And here's the reality. If we can't show that our God has a remedy for the problem of hate and selfishness and sinfulness in this world, if we can't do that, then as a church, we are nothing divine and nothing supernatural. We, we might as well just call ourselves a club and get a cup of coffee, grab a newspaper, and head on home. But we're not that. We are a church, and God, God has called us to something greater. This is a church, and if the church is going to be healthy, then each of us will be playing a vital role in the church and in its life and mission. If you're just joining us this morning, we're in the middle of a three-part series on spiritual gifts, and... We're doing this and we're preaching on this because we believe that this church, this body cannot function appropriately unless every part is contributing in a meaningful way. And so church, we do not, as your pastors, we do not want you to be confused about how God has gifted you. We do not want you to be um, unsure about how God has equipped you to serve in his church. And so if you're a follower of Christ, you have a spiritual gift. The question is, do you know what it is and are you using it? And to help you with that, we're going to spend our time today in Romans 12. And in this text, as Bob read, Paul is going to call us to do three things. Number one, in verses one and two, Paul is going to call us to a right relationship with God. And two, he's going to call us to a right relationship with one another in verses four through eight. And the third thing is he's going to call us to a right relationship with ourselves, which is really verse three, a right understanding of ourself. And, and we need to understand each of those things if we're going to understand our spiritual gifts. So first, we need to have a right relationship with God. Look at verses one and two. It's a very interesting text because as Bob said, in Romans 12, Paul is making this great angular turn. And, and he's beginning to unpack the, the gospel and the practical application of the gospel. And he begins by laying out this incredible metaphor for discipleship, which he calls a living sacrifice. That's who we are. Because of what God has done for us in Christ, Paul is saying it just makes sense that your bodies become a living sacrifice. I mean, that's just reasonable because of God's mercy. And, and this is obviously an oxymoron, a living sacrifice. I mean, how do you have a living sacrifice? And, and that's an, that, that logic, it's paradoxical, and it doesn't make sense, of course, in the logic, except for the logic of the gospel, which says we die to ourselves and are now alive to Christ. So this metaphor actually ends up becoming the central way in which Paul talks about the Christian life. And then immediately he gives us a picture of that living sacrifice by saying that it is a person who is not conformed to this world, verse 2, but is transformed or being transformed by the renewing of their mind. So these are powerful verses. In fact, I would say that I can't think 
of anywhere in the New Testament of two verses that are more powerful or more poignant or, or a more clear manifesto for Christian living in this world than these two verses. I mean, this is where life begins. It begins with glad, wholehearted, unreserved consecration of our bodies to God, everything to God giving our whole selves to him. And according to verse one, being a living sacrifice is simply our basic and reasonable act of worship. So this living sacrifice is given to God. And let's just be really clear about this. This sacrifice of our lives is not given to God for an an atonement for sin, but it's given to God because we're saying when we give ourselves to God that our sin has been atoned for, that God has taken away the guilt and the power of our sin. In other words, your life then is a thank offering of sorts, a thank offering. But as one man aptly said, the trouble with a living sacrifice is that it keeps falling off the altar. And isn't that our challenge? is that every day we have to re-consecrate ourselves to God. We, we keep stumbling. We keep falling. And see, in the Old Testament, the old sacrifice was put on the altar. It was burned. It was consumed. It was killed. But a living sacrifice, I mean, that's the paradoxical nature of it. It continues on. It's perpetual. It never dies. It's never burnt up. It continues. It's being offered to God consistently over and over, which means every morning when we rise and we get up, we lay ourselves flat before God again. And we say, oh God, come and give me fresh anointing for this day. And I consecrate myself to you and I give myself into your hands. Take my life, Lord, let it be consecrated to you. We give our lives to God. But what motivates us to do that? I mean, you probably don't wake up in the morning with just that incredible hunger every day. You wake up saying, I just so desperately want to consecrate my life to God. You want that in your heart, but you don't always feel that. There's a coldness that begins to set in. And so what motivates us to do this? But notice what Paul says. Notice how he appeals here to us. He says, I appeal to you, urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. I want you to think about that. God's mercy is the theme all throughout Romans. So just go back to Romans three for a second. In Romans chapter three, Paul says, the very famous verse, there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, think about this, no one who seeks God, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he says this, and, All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That is mercy. Or chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin or what we earn for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Mercy. That's mercy. Or chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 2, because we have been set free from the law of sin and death. That's mercy. Great mercy. And then we reach this climax in chapter 8 where Paul says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Mercy. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Mercy. 
How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Mercy. So the first 11 chapters of Romans are this piling on of mercy upon mercy upon mercy until we get to chapter 12 and the mercies of God become so poignant and powerful. And here's the reality is that, is that none of us deserve God's mercy. In the divine courtroom, we all face an infinitely righteous judge who cannot and will not simply sweep our sin under the rug. But this righteous God turns to his son and he says, will you bear the wrath and punishment of these people? Will you suffer in their place and pay for their sins? And Jesus says, I will. What a God, what a savior, what mercy. Friend, if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, I just want you to know that that mercy can be yours today. It's ours. We celebrate that. That's why we come here and sing. It's why we rejoice. That mercy can be yours. Repent, turn from your sins, and put your trust in Jesus. So with that said, let the full weight of of that mercy, okay, impact your reading again of verse 1. Paul says again, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of that mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See what Paul is saying to us? Paul is saying that at the beginning of the Christian life, the the Christian life is this total sacrificial offering of ourselves to God. And that daily sacrifice leads to the transformation of our lives, to the renewing of our mind. And and the the place of the mind in the believer is really such a central thought. It's absolutely crucial. The whole Bible, in fact, witnesses to this principle that grace makes its appeal to us through the mind. So we have in Isaiah chapter one, where God says, come, he says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Grace is making its appeal through the mind. And so transformation starts here with a mind, but it progresses to the heart and to the will of man. And the ultimate goal is that Christ will reform our desires and literally change us from the inside out. But all this starts with a right understanding. And so Paul moves in verse three to address how we think about ourselves. Not not only are we to have a right relationship with God, but we are to have a right relationship with ourselves, a right understanding of ourselves. And this is why the first instruction Paul gives us about the new mind in verse three is to pursue humility. Humility. He says, do not think of yourself, verse three, more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Now imagine this again, you're standing in the courtroom of God Okay, you're standing in God's courtroom and you know that you deserve everlasting punishment, but instead you hear God say with joy, because of my son and because of his sacrifice, you are declared not guilty. You are declared forgiven. My son, you are free to enjoy all the things that I've given you, not only me 
the enjoyment of me, but you're free to graze in the green pastures that I have set before you and lie down beside still waters. You're free to not only enjoy me in this life, but in the life to come, you will have everlasting bliss and everlasting joy. And you hear the father say that. Imagine you're in that courtroom. You know you're busted. You know you deserve nothing but punishment and eternal condemnation and hell. And you hear God with a smile on his face say that to you. Now imagine if you heard that. I guarantee you would not walk out of that courtroom with a whiff of pride. No, you would feel so humbled, so broken, and so undeserving. In fact, you would tremble at the very idea of thinking highly of yourself. I mean, what have you done? You're on death row. What have you done to save yourself? Nothing. So you cannot possibly think highly of yourself. And friends, here's the basic point is that people that understand mercy do not think of themselves highly. They don't. They have a sober assessment of themselves. But here's the problem. You and I, we tend to think of ourselves with an exaggerated sense of our own importance, don't we? And so one of the most sinister temptations and serious distortions that comes into our minds as Christians is to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. It's pride. Now let me ask this question. What is the opposite of pride? I mean, if Paul says here that we're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, the question is, what's the opposite of that? How do you not think more highly of yourself than you ought to? What's the opposite? And I think the answer here, in some senses, is surprising. Because the opposite of pride, I would argue, is not mainly self-condemnation. I mean, self-depreciation. It is that to agree. I mean, we understand, to be honest, that in and of ourselves, we are nothing. Right? We understand that. We understand that by ourselves, we cannot save ourselves. And without Christ, we are condemned. All of that is true. But I would argue that the opposite of pride is not mainly self-condemnation, but Christ-exaltation. That's the opposite of pride. See, the opposite of thinking too highly of yourself is not to degrade yourself, but to think highly of Jesus. The opposite of loving yourself is not hating yourself. It's loving Jesus. It's loving him. So the way I think verse 3 works is, is like this. Paul says, okay, the way to think about yourself is to think according to the measure of faith God has given. Do you see that phrase there? And, and, and what does faith do? Faith always looks away from self and it looks to Jesus. That's what faith does. It looks away from self and it looks to Christ. And this is really, really important stuff because it means that your identity, listen, is not found in what you do, but who you are. When you assess yourself, you assess yourself in Christ. That is, that, that's true for any healthy Christian. So as William Temple once said, and I love this quote, he said, what I am worth is what I am worth to the God who gave the blood of his only son for my salvation. And that is a marvelous great deal. 
In other words, your worth does not come from your gift of teaching. Your worth does not come from your gift of hospitality or encouragement or leadership or service. Your worth is not fundamentally bound up with what you do, but it has everything to do with who you are. That is such a freeing thing for people. You need to hear this. Who you are in Christ is the issue. So we need to assess ourselves in light of Christ. Jesus is our identity. Your gift is your activity. Your title and your gift clarifies what you do, but it's not your identity. I'm not a preacher. I'm a Christian who preaches. You're not an administrator. You're a Christian who administrates. You're not a leader. You're a Christian who leads, who gets to lead. This is so important for us. You are not what you do. Your identity is your relationship with Christ. And if we do not understand this, what we're gonna do is we're gonna turn our gifts into an idol. And we're gonna start identifying with those gifts. And we're gonna start saying, I'm a preacher. I'm a leader. I'm an administrator. And we start finding our identity in that. Look at my gift. I really have a gift of hospitality. I'm really somebody. And you start finding your identity in that and not in Christ. And that's the essence of idolatry. And Paul is calling us away from that. I mean, I love to preach, but I don't want to get my identity doing this. My identity is not contingent upon what I do. The the truth is, folks, if I stop preaching, then I'm still loved by God. I'm still accepted by God. And I'm still, guess what? Satisfied in God and with God. My identity is not tied up in that. And so Paul says, when you think of yourself, think soberly with sober judgment, think according to faith. And what does faith do? Faith looks away from self and it looks to Jesus. Faith values Christ more than it values self. And that is the meaning of Christian humility. Christian humility is valuing Jesus above all other things. Humility is not self-loathing. Here's why. Because it doesn't take any faith to loathe yourself. It doesn't take any faith to condemn yourself. I'll tell you what takes faith though. It takes faith to look away from yourself and to treasure Jesus above everything else. To say that Jesus is my all. That's humility. That's sober thinking. That, my friend, is sound judgment. Now, the gospel is where a biblical understanding of self is formed. Because when I begin to see the love of God for me in Christ Jesus, when I begin to understand that as a hopeless, helpless sinner, God rescued me and raised me in Christ Jesus to a place of infinite significance. When I understand that, then and only then do I begin to think rightly about myself. What could be more significant than being a child of God? (laughs) Amazing. A son and daughter of the king of glory, a co-heir and brother with Jesus himself. What could be more significant than that? Getting a PhD? (laughs) Having a great personality with a lot of friends? Running a successful company and being a who's who in America? Being known as a super mom that gets it all done, keeps a perfect house and has great children? 
Is that where your identity is? No. Your significance is in the fact that as a busted up, weak, tired, and broken sinner, Jesus loves you and he will see you through till the end. Your significance is in the fact that no matter what happens to you in this life, no matter what diseases come your way, no matter how few friends you have or how unsuccessful you are in the eyes of the world, your significance lies in the fact that you are infinitely, infinitely loved by God and will be forever. Now, all of this, listen, has everything to do with spiritual gifts. I thought this sermon was about spiritual gifts. It is. But this is so important because if you don't get verses one and two and you don't get verse three, you will not function appropriately in the church. Your gift will be a waste. So, I mean, I just have to spend that time on this text. It is so important. Because unless you present, listen, your body as a living sacrifice, unless you maintain a sober assessment of yourself, you will not use your gift appropriately. And here's the large point. A right relationship with God and a right understanding of self will inevitably lead to a right relationship with the church. And here's why humility is so important to spiritual gifts. When you read about these gifts, just look at them right there in six through eight, prophecy, service, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, and showing mercy. When you read about these, think about this. Someone is on the receiving end of those gifts. What does that mean? That means if someone is teaching, someone else needs to be taught. If someone is giving, someone's in need of assistance. If someone is exhorting, then someone needs to be exhorted. Right? In other words, the mention of these gifts means that some of us find ourselves in a position of need, while others of us find ourselves in a position of presumed strength. The strong ones then are kind of moving toward the weak ones. And obviously that is a recipe for pride, serious pride. I mean, when a man starts to view himself as strong, pride is lurking right around the corner. He, he, I mean, he's just one step away from, conclu- from concluding, in fact, that actually he's better than that other person. Right? I mean, he's stronger. And, and that guy is always needing help. And, you know, I'm just kind of here to help that guy out because he just really doesn't know. He hadn't really figured out life. You know, he's not a very good husband. He's not a really good father. And, man, he's just kind of a bum. He doesn't know how to manage his money. He doesn't know how to get a job. He doesn't know how to do things. And, yeah, I'm just, you know, I can help that guy out. I'm a, I'm, man, I'm a strong guy. I can disciple him. I can mentor him. And he needs me. And I'm probably better than him. I mean, you wouldn't say that, but you feel that. You look at that guy and you say, you're a better Christian than that man. And you think about, you just think about this, the absurdity of that. I mean, this is such a recipe for pride. And when that happens, the church ends up getting separated into the gifted and the not so gifted and the important and the not so important. And listen, Paul absolutely obliterates those categories. Just hates those categories. All the gifted people head over to that side. All the non-gifted people head over to this side. All the gifted people go serve the non-gifted people. All the important people go help the, help the non-important people and show them how to live their life. 
The, that's the opposite of the Christian ideal. So Paul just, just destroys that, which is another reason why we have to be so careful not to create a culture here where we professionalize ministry. Leaving ministry to the professionally trained pastors and teachers is not God's plan. Those of us who are called by God to pastor have been called to equip and train all the members of the church to advance the kingdom. Every Christian in this room has a strategic role and objective to advance the kingdom. And, and our job as pastors is to help you do that. Everyone is important. Everyone has a gift and nobody is more important than anyone else. So Paul says, don't be conceited. Verse three, because here's the thing. And isn't this a sobering thought? This came to me last night. I was just, just thinking about this. The strong man who boasts one Sunday in his sufficiency finds himself in a hospital bed the very next Sunday in great need of help. I mean, the seemingly strong woman who has it all together loses her child, husband, and house. The young guy who has such a gift for exhortation falls into serious sin and needs exhorting himself. The woman who's so smart and godly and mentors so many ladies finds herself with a mental illness and needs somebody to do her laundry and clean her house. And Paul is saying, you may think that you're better than that weaker brother, but do not be conceited because the next thing you know, you may find yourself in desperate need of that weaker brother to help you. And that's a call for humility if there ever was one because it's a call, it's both a call for humility for the strong not to be proud and for the weak not to be self-pitying. Don't be self-pitying. Don't look at your brother and say, I just wish I had that gift. I wish I had that gift. I'm really a nobody around here. That's, that's wrong. See, the issue of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ is an issue of diversity and unity. We are one body, but we're diverse. That's the whole point of four, verses four and five. And God ordains diversity in his church. He infuses the church, think about this, with various degrees of faith and various degrees of spirituality. And this diversity is good because without it, we can't roll up our sleeves and serve one another. We, if, if, if we were all the same, how would we even help each other? And that's how God's equipped us to serve and to help each other. I mean, what if you came to church today, for example, and no one was available to teach your children? I mean, no chair was set out for you. I mean, what if no one worked on a sound or no one prepared to lead various portions of the service, no worship team? See, God has rigged this thing. And, and we cannot be a church and functionalist. Everybody recognizes who they are, finds what their job is, and serves the body. We all have a responsibility. Everyone here has a spiritual gift or gifts, probably more accurately. In fact, Peter says, as each one has received a spiritual gift, employ it. I love that language. You have a gift, put it to work. Employ it. It's just, it's just great language. If, if you're sitting on your spiritual gift and you're not using it, then the reality is you're not fulfilling your calling as a Christian. 
that gift that you have is your stewardship before God. I mean, you should be serving your brother with that gift. We're not supposed to be 10 people pushing 90 people up a hill. Oklahoma's football coach, Bob Stoops, was once asked this. He said, what, what has football done for physical fitness in America? And you know what he said? Nothing. He said absolutely nothing because in football we have 22 guys that are in desperate need of rest and 60 guys that are in desperate need of exercise. <laughs> and that's a good metaphor for the church because we have some people here, some members here who are dying. They're so tired. And we have others who are just pretty relaxed. Desperate need of exercise. So how does that happen? Here's how it happens. As long as we have a consumerism, as long as consumerism is part of the church, we will have this problem because there are two types of people that come to church. One, one person instinctively asks and immediately, where can I serve? What can I do? The other person instinctively asks, what's here for me? See, what they're doing is that guy's looking for the best deal. He, he, he's wondering, okay, so I'm, I'm looking around and I'm seeing, and, and, and actually if there's another church that comes along and they have kind of a better deal, kind of a better package, peace out. You know, because I've got some stuff I want to sort of take care of and I've got some things over there I would love to have. And so, see you later. And he goes, he just bolts. That is so selfish. That happens in a church and it's wrong. It's just wrong. I mean, there's no way you can justify that biblically especially if you've covenanted yourself to a body. In fact, one of the clearest tests of Christian maturity is this. Are you a giver or are you a taker? Think about yourself this morning. I, I, I would say for the Western church that consumerism is the bane of our existence. Consumerism ruins the church, just ruins it. It's tragic for so many reasons. First of all, it's totally displeasing to God, which is the main thing. God's displeased. And secondly, it's selfish and it uses other Christians. Let me put this really practically. If you're not serving, you're using your brothers and sisters. I, I, in some senses, you're stealing from them. They give and you take. And you're happy with that relationship. Week after week, month after month, and God forbid for some of us, could it be year after year? Surely not. I mean, the result is that what happens is some members just get so worn out while others are just sitting back and enjoying all the amenities. Listen, you and I don't have a right to just sit and consume. It's like the coach who says, hey, man, if you're, gonna, if you're just going to stand there, then just take off the uniform. You're not an active part of the team. Just hang it up. And we need to be careful because we live in a consumerist world. Churches are competing because people are shopping for a church that will meet their needs. Which church provides the best goods and services? Are you a giver or a taker? Let me ask you this. If you died today, how long would it take for us to feel the absence, your absence? You know what, for some in this body, it would just be hours because they are such load-bearing members. For others, perhaps, the church wouldn't feel it at all because they're consumers. 
and they're not contributors. Friends, God has called you to mission. He has not called you to just sit and consume. God has called you to a great and grand vision for your life. God has called you to get out of that chair and to get involved in his mission and to advance his kingdom strategically. That, that ought to be something that as a Christian, your heart it resonates with. To say, I'm just not content to sit and listen to sermons for 30 years. I want to get out of my chair. I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me and his power within me. I want to get out of my chair and I want to get on mission with Jesus. Don't waste your life. Christians, hear me. Don't waste your gift. God has called you to get out of the chair and get on mission. And, I, and, and that's, what, that's why our mission statement is we exist to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission. We're not stagnating. We're not sitting here. We don't exist to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers that just sort of go upward all the time. Let's hear good preaching, expositional preaching. Let's hear good teaching, doctrinal teaching. No, we are a community that exists to move. We are not a stagnating community. We do not sit and just consume religious goods and services. We will not sit here and listen to good teaching and good preaching and be content to sit in our chairs and do nothing for Jesus. That is disobedience, it is sinful, and it is wrong. God has called us to get our rear ends out of the seat and get going for mission, on mission with Jesus. Anything less than that is not biblical and it's wrong. And I don't want to be a part of that. And you shouldn't either. And, and this is something that, yeah, I'm passionate about it because, dear friends, I want to use my life wisely. I so desperately want us as a church to use our lives wisely. God has given us this privilege and this opportunity. Here's the thing. God has called you to mission. And yes, I will say this. God has called you to absolutely reorient your life around his mission. And that happens through the local church whether it happens here or whether it happens in a different local church, God has called you to reorient your life around his mission. Now, that's all heavy stuff. And I recognize that this is heavy for you. And so let, let me close with some practical help here and encouragement. And what I wanna say to you by way of encouraging you and loving you and showing you God's grace and kindness is this. You, listen to me, are gifted. Every one of you. Don't, don't, don't exclude yourself. Christian, you are gifted. Uniquely by God. Some of you have never heard somebody say that to you. So you hang your head, you live droopy because you just don't believe you're really valuable. And that's exactly what Satan wants you to think. Because if Satan can get you to think you don't really have much to contribute, you're really not a gifted Christian, you'll just waste your life not serving. And you won't contribute to the advance and spread of his kingdom. It's a lie from the devil. So hear God saying to you this morning, son, daughter, you are uniquely gifted. Okay? You have a unique gift to contribute. 
If you're a follower of Christ, you have a spiritual gift. And so what I want to end with is this quick sketch of, of the gifts mentioned here in verses 6 through 8. And, and just a word about how to discern what gifts you might have, okay? Because often people are confused about exactly what we're talking about when we speak about spiritual gifts. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, which is where Pastor Mark's going to be next week, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Which means that's our job as pastors. We, we can't let you be uninformed about this while we're doing the series. Okay, so let's go for a definition here. I would say a spiritual gift is a supernatural capacity to positively impact the kingdom of Christ. Or Wayne Grudem says it this way. He says, it's a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. That means God has given every follower of Jesus a supernatural capacity to impact his kingdom. You have it. I have it. The question is, are we using it to impact his kingdom through the local church? That's the question. So if that's what a spiritual gift is, how do you know what your gifts are? Well, I, I have to tell you, this is just such an obvious thing that we just miss it. The way you discern what your gifts are is by rolling up your sleeves and getting to work for Jesus. It's attempting things. It's trying things. It's beginning to serve. It's, it's finding a vacancy, a need, and it's beginning to sort of apply yourself to that. And what you'll do is you'll find that some people are brutally honest with you. You'll start doing something. You're asked to do something, and you... You're just, you just really botch it. And they may not say that to you, but you're not asked to do that again. <laughs> and it becomes pretty clear, that's probably not my gift. Others of you then will do something and somebody will be like, whoa, sister, <laughs> when you do that, you are blessing God's people. You are so encouraging. You are so helpful. Can you do that a lot more? And then you should be saying, that's probably my spiritual gift. That's probably what God has given me. So the point is we got to get busy. Now, there's 20 gifts mentioned in the New Testament and seven of them are listed here. And all I'm going to do is, and this was totally intentional because we had spent a whole sermon just talking about service and talking about leadership. And I just, I just didn't think that's helpful because a living sacrifice is foundational to this. Having a humble assessment of yourself it's foundational. It's going to take you a lifetime in some sense to figure out how you're gifted. So what I want you to do is I'm just going to define these and let you go home and think about how you might be gifted. Okay? We're just going to close this way. But as I describe these, what I want you to do is pick two that tend to describe you the best. I'm going to give you a quick description of each. And when I do, I just want you to decide if that's the sort of thing you can see God doing through you. Okay? And if so, mark it down. Yes. No. Or maybe. All right? Here we go. Prophecy. Prophecy. Paul says, right there, verse 6, Paul says, if a man's gift is prophecy, let him use it in proportion to his faith. Now, we could define prophecy this way, I think, for our purposes this morning. Prophecy is a spiritual ability to publicly communicate God's word with authority. When, when this gift is expressed, God's word is communicated in such a way that it convinces unbelievers and it challenges God's people. 
And I'm not saying everything that needs to be said about prophecy, but I want to start here at an elementary level and say that it at least means it's a, it's a gift that's communicated with authority and it convinces unbelievers and challenges God's people. It's the ability to communicate God's truth in such a way that it's obvious God is speaking. The messenger is small, but the message, the message is stirring in your heart and you, you know, that's right. I'm hearing that. I'm feeling that. That's a, that's a prophetic gift. And I believe that the key use of this gift today is preaching and heralding God's word itself. So, so when people would listen to Jesus teach, what do they say? They would say, where did this man come from and with what authority? Where did this authority come from? See, a person with a prophetic gift brings conviction of sin and an awareness of its consequences. So, yes, no, maybe. Number two, service. We could define service as a spiritual ability to recognize unmet needs in the church as they relate to God's work and invest personal resources to meet that need. This is a task-oriented person. A person will see another person struggling in their marriage, and if they have a prophetic gift, what they might do is, is exhort them and, and correct them by identifying issues of sin. But if they have a gift of service, what they might do is they'll encourage that person to get some counseling or go to a marriage conference, or maybe they'll even volunteer to sort of take their kids for a weekend off their shoulders so that they can be freed up to go. That's service. It's a spiritual ability to recognize unmet, unmet needs and invest personal resources to meet them. Yes, no, maybe. Teaching. We could define teaching as a spiritual ability to educate God's people by clearly explaining and applying the Bible in a way that causes others to learn. I mean, a person with a teaching gift tends, this is, this is probably an overstatement, but it's helpful, I think. It, a person with a teaching gift tends to focus on the mind while a person with a prophetic gift tends to focus on the heart and will. So you have preachers who are really driven towards change and, the, and, and, and behavior and thought patterns. And you have other te and teachers who are just trying to just help you understand the information. So there's a difference there. Okay, yes, no, maybe. Exhortation. The word translated exhort here could be translated comfort or encourage. But because it comes immediately after teacher, the word probably has more to do with urging Christians to live out the truth and the implications of the gospel. So we could define the gift of exhortation as a spiritual ability to motivate God's people to apply and act on the truth they hear, especially when they're discouraged or they're wavering in their faith. So do you have a gift of exhortation? Yes, no, maybe. Giving. Yeah, I know what everybody's thinking. I hope I don't have this gift. <laughs> hope I don't have the gift of giving. I mean, well, let me be clear about something. Everybody is called to give and serve. So you don't get a get out of this. But in the New Testament, there are two gifts that are isolated as, as peculiar strengths of that. People who really long to give. People who really have a special emphasis on serving. And so there's an extra measure here and it's classified as a gift. How do you know if you have that? Well, I would define it this way. Giving, uh, the spiritual gift of giving is an ability and an extraordinary desire to generously contribute money and other resources so that the body of Christ is strengthened and God's kingdom is expanded. 
These guys are visionaries. They want to they pump resources into the kingdom and move it along. This person has the ability to, to manage money, usually, and he desires to use it for the sake of God's work. Yes, no, maybe. Leading. We could define the gift of leadership as a spiritual ability to communicate a biblical and compelling vision to God's people in a way that produces followers. That, that's so important. This is a person that's concerned about where and when things should happen. And people have confidence in his leadership and they want to follow him. And, and, and that word is used twice in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 1 Timothy 5 to refer to elders and pastors. And that's typically, that's where that gift is typically manifested in terms of leading and guiding the whole church. Yes, no, maybe. Mercy, finally. We can define mercy as a spiritual ability to recognize people um, who are hurting and take action to relieve that suffering. I mean, these are people that are extremely compassionate and gladly carry the burdens of others without feeling inconvenienced. It's not really a big inconvenience. They just love that. And so to use the marriage example, again, if a couple's struggling in their marriage, one person in the church may exhort them or teach them. Another person may give them money to help them go to a conference or serve them by watching their children, okay, or help them, or someone else might give them money to help them get going. But a person here with a gift of mercy will hug them and cry over them because of the pain that they're experiencing in their marriage. Gift of mercy. So do you see how the whole body works together? It's beautiful. We need each other. I mean, you can cry, listen, you can cry over a person all day long, but sometimes they just need to be corrected. Or you can correct a person all day long, but sometimes they just need to be shown that they're loved and cared for. Or you can teach a person, but sometimes they just need money to get going. Or you can give people money and watch their kids, but they need to be taught where to go. So we all play a vital role. And so the whole body must work together. Now I close with this. What are your gifts? What do you think they are? Because friends, you're called to use them in this church for his glory. And I can tell you, that this church has tons, tons of opportunities for you to serve. Here they are, visiting, seniors, hospital visitation, prayer for the sick, set up, tear down, nursery, children's ministry, art, craft, graphic design, media, AV, music, prayer, grounds, property, facilities, youth, international mission, counseling, pre-marriage and marriage counseling, administrative assistance, ministries of mercy, local mission, mentoring, discipleship, open homes, welcome, greeting, assimilation, security, hospitality, and on and on and on it goes. So I leave you with this. Friend, you are gifted. Know your gift. Find your place and employ it by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word, which is clarifying and helpful. Lord, we pray that you would instruct us in the way that we should go. Pray that Romans 12 would be a, a catalyst to move our church to another level of service and involvement in your kingdom. Lord, as we close now and sing, pray that our hearts would be drawn up to worship and that we would just, what we would long for God more than anything else is to be a living sacrifice and just lay ourselves down at the altar for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.